Hebrews 20.20, once again, increment 44 of We See Jesus. Huper pantos gusetai thanatu. Jesus tasted death for all. We'll begin with prayer. And Father, we thank you today for this opportunity for your word to travel forth with power, with clarity, and with the saving ability to restore, to recover, to comfort, to console, to build up, to strengthen your people, and also to bring the good news to those who are yet without the hope of eternal life and who are still without Christ in this world in their experience. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. July 8th was a stellar day in heaven because heaven received Kelly Marie Lynch, whom we celebrate today. And we grieve in our hearts and weep together. I'm speaking for to tell us thy phalanx. For Kelly's family, especially for Debbie Meneer, our dear friend in Little Hocking, and for all those at the Potter's Shed who also knew and loved Kelly, Bill and Jennifer, whom she was their daughter-in-law, her husband, Sean, her family, her children. And it's hard to imagine that someone loves her more than you do, especially you, Debbie. But the one who does love her more than you has received her to himself. And no doubt she walks in the unspeakable glories of heaven with Mike, who also preceded her. The Lord has called upon you, Debbie, to experience something in this life that is a sharing in the unspeakable suffering of Christ and of God the Father in some very small but very meaningful way. So we share with you today and weep with you and we look forward to rejoicing you with you in the unspeakable joy of that inevitable reunion in which we'll all be together with Christ, with all the saints, and in fact with all of the redeemed creation. Kelly loved music, and she's no doubt hearing the unspeakable music of the heavenly spheres even now and singing along and she loved the word and received many of the messages that come from this pulpit and I know that they in some small way prepared her for that glorious entry into the presence of Christ so father may your presence and the presence of your son Jesus Christ personally comfort Debbie and all those who mourn 
and feel the pain of this loss and grant them the fragrance of memories and the expectation of the glorious and wonderful reunion. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I believe a memorial is slated for the 22nd, and I believe a wonderful speaker is slated to speak there, named Bill Carpenter, a poet, a prophet, an evangelist, and a man with a shepherd's heart. Today it's my prayer that the word of the cross will be deeply rooted in all who receive this message, in all of us. Those who consider the word of the cross to be foolish are perishing, but to us, for whom it has great meaning, it is both the power of God and salvation itself. For the word of Christ cannot be separated from the word of the cross, and it's impossible to comprehend the unspeakable love of Christ without considering the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Our text is Hebrews 2.9, and it reads like this. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God, and here we may insert a variant of the translation or a variant of the manuscript of Hebrews 2.9, which may actually read, far from God. There is kariti theu, which means by the grace of God, but there is a variant translation in some manuscripts, which is chorus theu, meaning without God, apart from God, or even far from God. For now, we'll leave it by the grace of God. He would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Once again, I'll read that verse without interruption. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So it's here that I want to insert into our study a variation in the translation of Hebrews 2.9. It's found in some manuscripts, and the interpretation or that particular text became popular in the patristic era. That's the period of time which we call the time of the so-called church fathers. The overwhelming majority of texts that we have, and I have quite a few Greek texts in my computer, has the phrase kariti. Theu, that's C-H-A-R-I-T-I, Theu, the grace of God, or by the grace of God, as the date of phrase indicates. However, some manuscripts have chorus Theu, that's C-H-long-o-r-i-s-t-h-e-o-u, 
Chorus Thau. That has various meanings. It can mean apart from God or without God. It can mean different from God, otherwise than God, except God, that's E-X-C-E-P-T, or besides God. Chorus Theu conveys the meaning far from God. Consider what this would read as then. Jesus, far from God, tasted death for everyone. The reason he's crowned with glory as we see him in a heavenly vision is because of that suffering of death. The adverb chorus, C-H-O-R-I-S again, is also found in Hebrews 4.15 in the Greek text where Jesus is said to have been tested in every way just as we are and yet without sin. That's the word chorus and then harmatia, without sin. And that means without yielding to sin. He was tested in every way like we are without yielding to sin. It's used in Hebrews 9.28 in the Greek text of Hebrews where Christ is predicted to come again without sin once again. That word chorus is employed in that phrase. Without sin. Meaning when he comes from future worlds he comes not to expiate sin like he did the first time. He came the first time, as we might say it, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the juncture or the clash of the ages in Hebrews 9.26. He will come again without sin, with salvation. That is, to bring salvation. The sin that he put away in this world in A.D. 30 is the sin of the world. Just as the salvation he brings from future world is for all the world. He takes away the sin of the world and he brings salvation from future world to this world. So it's not as though the writer of Hebrews, this PT, this pastor theologian, is not familiar with that word chorus, Chorus is also used in Hebrews 7.20. It's used there twice. It's used in Hebrews 9.7, 9.18, Also used in 1028, 11.6, 11.40, 12.8, and 14. So he's no stranger to that word chorus which maybe gives strength to the variant translation that he, without God, apart from God, far from God, tasted death for everyone. Among modern adherents to this translation is Jürgen Moltmann. In his book, 
the way of Jesus Christ. He sees it entirely compatible, that translation, chorus, thau, compatible with Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moltmann regards these to be the last words uttered by Jesus on the cross, showing that he actually died in a state of God-forsakenness. That's an impossible possibility of a word, God-forsakenness. Though there's much that argues against this interpretation, that is, that those were the very last words that Jesus spoke, I still think it's helpful and very instructive to consider the rationale behind this translation. Inasmuch as I believe an insight lurks there into the very heart of God, into the shroud of darkness around Calvary, and in that impenetrable darkness is a light of insight that is transformative for our time, has the power to transform a life, a person, a church, a generation, a civilization. It's called the just and mysterious law of the cross. It's a lens into the very heart of God. And it's a view, a rare view, into the interaction between, and indeed the coaction of the Father and the Son and the Spirit at the cross. We have all three members of the triune God mentioned in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The sudden and surprising turn of text here in Hebrews 2.9. To the son's suffering and death discloses the actual focal point of the Christology of Hebrews or the word of Christ within Hebrews. In his commentary on Hebrews, which I've been plowing through along with several other commentaries, Harold Attridge it's A-T-T-R-I-D-G-E, rightly identifies, quote, the heart of Hebrews Christology to be, quote, the affirmation that Christ is God's definitive word to the world because of his salvific death. Please notice that. The heart of Hebrews Christology is the affirmation that Christ is God's definitive word to the world because of his salvific death. Now, that salvific death, I believe, is universally salvific. Whether or not you believe that, 
I'm sure you may believe that Jesus' death is indeed salvific, saving in its effect. Now, to taste death here does not mean to give it a sample taste and then immediately spit it out because it's so distasteful. Rather, it means to fully experience the bitterness of separation from all that is good. In fact, from God himself, who is the essence of goodness. Good in its essence. Pseudo-Dionysius wrote that the writers of scriptures, quote, call the divine subsistence itself goodness. He then added, this essential good, which he capitalizes, G-O-O-D, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. So the very definition of God as good or as goodness means that this goodness that God is extends into all things. Of course that's true because ultimately God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But then you knew that already. So for Jesus to taste death without God, or as Moltmann says it, far from God, is for him to experience the incomprehensible horror of being separated from the essential good. From all that is good. Now you may have an objection coming up in your soul. And I'm going to handle that objection. At the end of today's message. Now that this also occurred by the grace of God. I certainly wouldn't argue that by the grace of God. Jesus tasted death for everyone. That this also occurred by the grace of God means that by Jesus tasting death for everyone, the essential good, that is God himself, could be extended into all things, beginning with all of humanity and then in all of creation and all of its times. The word diachronically comes to mind. That is, all creation through all of its time of existence. All of humanity in all of humanity's times. Through, dia, chronically, all through time. Among the patristic theologians, again, they're sometimes called church fathers. I'm not quite enamored of that phrase, but among the patristic theologians who read chorus in Hebrews 2.9 were those who intended the phrase chorus to mean that Jesus tasted death for all beings except for God. In other words, they're trying to get the scope of what salvation is. They, it's a universal scope or a cosmic scope of salvation that Jesus' death was for all beings except for God. Therefore, 
other than God, all beings are redeemed by Jesus Christ. God did not require redemption. This was in accord with what is known as the cosmic interpretation that was put forth by the patristics, most notably by Origen. He believed, that's O-R-I-G-E-N, he believed that Jesus experienced death for all rational beings, including angels. That is, all rational beings except for God or apart from God. According to Origen and others who followed him, Jesus died for all rational beings except for God. And that was their interpretation of Hebrews 2.9. And this is also reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 15.27 where God is not included or God is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, from the subjection of all things to the Son. Paul argues, if all things are subjected under the Son's feet, that exempts or excludes only the one who placed those things under his feet, which is God. So that was their attempt to show the horizon of the salvation that was wrought by Jesus Christ tasting death for everyone. Either way, though, the chorus reading, C-H-O-R-I-S, of Hebrews 2.9 was true to the universalistic interpretation of Christ's death, which the patristics held strongly to by their interpretation of such passages as 1 Corinthians 15.20-28. to That was one of the strongest passages in which universal Redemption was affirmed, culminating, therefore, with God being all in all. So certainly, and we've demonstrated this, I think, pretty extensively in a series called Better Call Paul and a series that extended into Romans, reading Romans with the light on, and then justification as one of the doctrines of Romans and then the doctrine of the mystery, along with doing and living theology. We demonstrated, I think, that Paul held to a cosmic or universalistic view of redemption, demonstrable not only in his passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, but also by 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21, Ephesians 1, 9-11, Ephesians 1, 21 to 23, and 4, 9 and 10. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Romans eleven thirty two, As well as 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. Titus 2, 11. Titus 3, 4. Etc., etc., and on it goes. By universalistic or cosmic is meant that the impact of Jesus' death on the cross, or that which we call the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that impact reaches not only all of humanity, but all rational beings and all of creation diachronically, even though his death was specifically 
for all human beings. Hebrews 2.16 demonstrates this. It says, He took hold not of angels, but of the seed of Abraham. This does not mean that angels in all of creation, terrestrial and celestial, did not benefit from the death of Jesus or will not benefit from it. No. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos itself. He takes away the sin of the universe. The sin of humanity, which is systemic in humanity. If you're going to, have to use the word systemic, you better use it properly. Systemic means throughout the whole of the body of humanity. A lot of people want to say that there's systemic evil in one racial group or another racial group or in one ethnic group or another ethnic group. They want to put the systemic evil in them when the Bible says all have sinned. And sinfulness is systemic. Not only in all humanity, but in, it has affected the entire universe in a thing called entropy. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world of humankind will take away the effect of sin in all the universe, including its effect in the angelic realm. He takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos. The universalistic insights of the patristic theologians were not wrong-headed. Sometimes they ended up in a wrong conclusion. Many times they didn't. Jesus indeed did die as the Sir, S-I-R, the single inclusive representative of all of humanity, i.e. the Son of Man. As the Sir, he is the Son of Man. so that humanity would have a share in the redemptive and reconciliatory subjection of all things. Hebrews 2.8. Philippians 3.20-21 comes to mind, along with 1 Corinthians 15.27, with a reference to Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 8.4-6, LXX 8.5-7, also LXX 109.1. As we noted previously, there is one renowned modern theologian, Jürgen Moltmann. I find his theology, his Christology, his soteriology phenomenally well done. And there are many theologians with whom I have profound fellowship and agreement theologically and Christology Christologically, while I do not necessarily adhere to their social implications of the gospel or their pol the political implications which they see in the gospel. But Moltmann's book, which I read a few years ago, called The Way of Jesus Christ, I think it was published in German in 1989, and then it came into Fortress Press around 1993 in English, translated by Margaret Cole. The 
way of Jesus Christ in a title, a section that's entitled The Death of God's Child. Now, think of this. Recently, I saw on TV the throes of agony of a father who had lost his son to violence in the recent violent outbreaks across this nation. His grief was unabashed. It was unashamed. It was open. It was tear-inspiring in anyone who watched it. The depth of the grief of the loss of a child. God the Father experienced that grief to the extent of infinity. We think of the sufferings that are endured by people, perhaps by the misuse of authority. Jesus was misused by the authority of the temple police who beat him, by the authority of certain Roman soldiers that were out of their discipline and controlled by demonic impulse who beat him and scourged him, mocked him and abused him in unspeakable ways. Jesus experienced that and was a victim of it. But he was a victor over injustice. And the father raised his child. And even David, who lost his child, says, he cannot come back to me, but I will go to him. There is unutterable consolation that we will go to those whom we have lost even though they will not come to us we will go to them so in this section called the death of God's child Moltmann fairly expresses his view the view there is fairly expressed let me read it this a paragraph from it that I've selected Jesus died the death of God's child at the hand of men. For Israel's Messiah is also called God's son. He quotes 2 Samuel 7.14 or cites it there. And in his Abba prayer, Jesus experienced himself as child. Of the Divine Father. This contradiction between his experience of himself and his experience of death is so profound that it has to be understood, listen carefully, as the God forsakenness of the Son of God. Jesus evidently died after a few hours on the cross, he says with a loud cry of torment. Mark 15.34 gives us the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? The idea that Jesus' last words to the God whom he had called upon as Abba, dear Father, could have been, you have abandoned me could surely never have taken root in Christian belief unless those terrible words 
had been really had really been uttered or unless they had at least been heard and in Jesus death cry listen to what Moltmann closes this paragraph with the much later epistle to the Hebrews still retains this remembrance that quote far from God chorus thau he tasted death for us all Moltmann unabashedly accepts the translation far from God. Moltmann's take on chorus theu, however, is different from the patristic, the classic patristic idea of Jesus dying for all beings except for God. Even though Herr Moltmann definitely subscribes to the redemption of all creation diachronically. He makes that very clear in other of his books, including the coming of God. I believe he rightly emphasizes the, listen to this word, experience of Jesus as God's child and as his eternally begotten son. Moltmann even uses the word experience or experienced three times at the beginning of the paragraph I just quoted to you. It's important to stress Jesus' experience here because the word taste, for taste death, is perhaps the most experiential of words. Taste here must not be taken to mean a limited experience or a partaking of a small amount of something. It means to fully partake of something like we would say, for example, that a person who was in prison for many years was released suddenly and tasted freedom, tasted liberation. Jesus' taste of death for everyone was a full partaking of, and we're in sacred territory here, and a total personal involvement with the incomprehensibly bitter experience of the wages of sin for all of humanity. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23. Once again, Attridge, on page 77 of his excellent commentary on Hebrews, rightly wrote, quote, What Christ does by his humiliation and exaltation is to taste death. Geusetai thanatu. A biblical expression that evokes the bitterness of the experience. Attridge also notes that some of the patristic interpretations of this tasting of death involves the anemic insinuation, that's what I call it, the anemic insinuation that Jesus merely gave death a kind of sample taste. I must admit that I have been very strongly influenced by the patristic theologians, especially on the doctrine of apocatastasis, which was so brilliantly handled through 16 years of research in her book, Valeria Romelli's book called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis. I admit, 
I was very strongly and still am influenced by some of the patristic theologians, but not on that point, not on the point where he merely sampled death. And that's the take that some modern universalistic so-called theologians have, that his death wasn't that horrible, that it was a sampling of death for everyone, that all it took was just a wine taster's taste of death. He swished it around in his mouth a little bit and spit it out, according to them. As if to refute that pallid proposition. And in an attempt to express the incomprehensibility of this tasting of death, Paul put it this way. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.20. That doesn't sound like a sample taste to me. He was made to be a curse for us, as we may see in our next increment, Galatians 3.13. Doesn't sound like a sample taste to me. Jesus, God's child, a child was born for us. A son was given. God's child, God's only eternally begotten son, the son who eternally proceeds from God the Father who is love and who is essential goodness. Jesus, the only one who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 John 3.5, 1 Peter 2.22. He was made to be sin for us. I've grown to abhor the theological stances of those universalists or not, whatever they call themselves, those who reduce the experience of Jesus' death to something less than the experience of God-forsakenness. The incomprehensibly bitter experience of the wages that sin pays out to all of humanity. Jesus recoiled in horror at the prospect of what he called drinking the cup that the Father gave him to drink. Not sipping from it, drinking it to the dregs. Mark 14, 36. Matthew 26, 39. Luke 22, 42. John 18, 11. That cup... That chalice meant that Jesus was to taste death for all of humanity. And though he shrunk in horror from this prospect, he nevertheless submitted to this death. Think of it. He says, drink the cup, not just sip from it and then spit it out. 
Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became obedient, not just to the extent of death by crucifixion, but to the death of this cross, this death, this tasting, this participation in the wages of sin, though he knew no sin, of the hell where sin would have taken us all if it were not for him. There's a reason why the Jews in Goshen, in their ghetto there in Egypt, were commanded to eat the roasted Paschal lamb with bitter herbs in Exodus 12.8. And there is a reason why Jesus received the bitter wine that was offered to him on a stick before saying the word, Tetelestai! After which he bowed his head and handed over his spirit. That is, he expired or died. John 19.30. Now, though we may argue with Moltmann about what were the very last words that Jesus spoke before he died physically. We cannot argue with the fact that Jesus tasted death while crucified for everyone and that that experience of the death of God's child was beyond our understanding. Just like the love of Christ passes knowledge. It was an impenetrable experience of suffering by the Son and by the Father who experienced the death of his eternally loved child. And we could even say of the Spirit who experienced the mother's heartbreaking loss and the loss of a child. What I find to be a bitter experience is the ongoing observation, constantly seeing that this reality, the only everlastingly true reality, is lost on so many in the current crises that are sweeping over our nation like a tsunami wave. He who died so far from God to bring us to God in 1 Peter 3.18 is being ignored or blasphemed. And the result is that people choose to remain far from God instead of be drawn close to him. I find that I must be careful not to allow this bitter sorrow to become a root of bitterness. I must trust God that I do not fail the grace of God. Hebrews 12:15. And fail to see that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is for all and will one day be the experience of all of humanity and all of creation. But I must also believe and I do by faith and not by sight. I believe 
that because Jesus Christ is guiding all things back to the Father as an acceptable offering to him, in Hebrews 1.3, that this crisis, this present crisis, or series of crises that aren't over yet, is for the ultimate good, and that many good things are even now occurring within it, within the darkness of it. Things unreported by the news media. Things not shown in the self-absorbed social media. Things that would probably be of no interest to the self-absorbed, the self-justifying, and the self-deceived. And those who are controlled and animated by pernicious influence that they don't even understand. I believe that by the grace of God may be well the right reading of Hebrews 2.9. That by the grace of God he tasted death for everyone. But I also believe that Jesus tasted death for everyone far from God in another sense, in another real sense. And that he was far from the very essential goodness that God will indeed extend into all people and all beings and all things through Jesus Christ. That this was the price to be paid to destroy the obstacle that would keep that goodness from being extended into all beings and all things and all of creation. Like the prodigal son of Jesus' lengthy parable in Luke 15, the Son of God went to a far country, away from his father, where he endured being lost, and where he endured and experienced death. The father of the prodigal son said, This my son was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. That's a word much more appropriately spoken by God about his unique son, Jesus, as the father in the parable about his prodigal and returning son. Indeed, the prodigal son, so-called, or the waiting father parable, has revealed Jesus and the father. The glorious truth of the gospel of the glory of the Christ in 2 Corinthians 4.4, is that Jesus' representational death, please note that adjective, representational death, removed the obstacle that prevented universal extension of divine goodness into all things, resulting in a new creation of all things. Now, at this point, let's stop and ask the question. Do you think we're a little closer to the answer to the twofold question that underlies much of our study of Hebrews up to this point. Why did God's perfect son, and he is perfect and was and always was, why did God's perfect son have to be perfected? And why through suffering of all things? I think we are closer to an answer to that because the only way to see the answer to that question is in the light that is shed upon the question by Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whether accepted, neglected, rejected, or eagerly received, 
The truth is that Jesus experienced death for all of humanity in order to be perfected in solidarity with all of humankind and for all of humankind to come into a solidarity with him, made the righteousness of God in him. His death is for everyone. For, huper, is the Greek word, H-U-P-E-R. Though this preposition is often used to denote substitution, and rightly so, here it is even better to see it as denoting representation. The representational reality of Jesus' death. It was and is for the benefit of everyone. To say that it is sufficient for all, and if, to say that it is, listen carefully, this is a phrase, a kind of a slogan phrase used by some people. To say that it is sufficient for all, efficient for some. Sufficient for all, efficient for some. That sounds quaint. But to say that it is sufficient for all and efficient for some amounts to a Calvinistic denial of the universally saving efficacy of Jesus' redemptive death. Unless one cites that slogan and intends to say by it that Jesus' death becomes efficient or effective in the spiritual life of those who are awakened to it by faith, while recognizing that we will all come to faith. Ephesians 4.13 says, until we all come to the unity of the faith and to the epignosis, knowledge of the Son of God, and to the full stature of the full maturity of Christ. The preposition, huper, is a catchword in the doctrine of divine promeity, or God being for us. God is for us all. And this is demonstrated with maximum effect in his not sparing, but handing over his son for us all. Romans 8.32. For us all means in behalf of us all. Human unbelief, listen carefully, human unbelief does not ultimately cancel the salvific efficiency, efficiency of that death, but human unbelief does move us away from the living God and alienates us from the life of God, Ephesians 4.19 coupled with, 4.18 and 19 coupled with Hebrews 3.12, in this age and during our time in it. We can spend the entire time that we have in this age aloof from God, departing from the living God with unbelief. Human unbelief doesn't cancel the universally effective efficiency of the death of Christ. But it does move us away from the living God and alienates us from the life of God in this age and during our time in it. Moreover, unbelief will be a cause for shame at the judgment seat of Christ. 
before which we will all appear to give an account. While walking by faith in this life, in this age, will be a cause for everlasting honor. An honor that is sort of prefigured in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. 1 through 12, 3. The representational reality of Jesus' death is strongly supported in Hebrews 3.1. I'm pointing to the future a little bit here. Where the PT refers to Jesus as the apostle of our confession. As the apostle. The only place where he's ever called apostle in the Bible. Although the word apostello is used about him dozens of times. Jesus is an emissary or envoy sent by God on a divine rescue mission, a mission which succeeded, a mission which was accomplished. Jesus as apostle, Hebrews 3.1, refers to his being the inclusive representative of all humanity in his death. He's not only apostle, though, he's also called archpriest, archieros, or high priest. Archpriest might even be better. As archpriest, Jesus is representative of all in his exaltation to God's right hand. Let me say it again. Jesus as apostle refers to his being the inclusive representative of all humanity in his death. As archpriest, Jesus is representative of all humanity in his exaltation to God's right hand. To be the priest of a people, one had to be of the people whom he represents. Priest and people is a solidarity, a unity. But it's a unity which distinguishes Jesus as great high priest or archpriest from all others. Jesus alone and no other appeared once at the crossroads of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. In Hebrews 9.26. And he alone, Jesus alone, has gone into heaven to appear for us in priestly intercession in order to save us to the uttermost. That is, to the point of a glorious bodily transconfiguration. Jesus alone is the human and divine Savior. We are the saved with the unspeakable privilege of partaking of the divine nature in him. 2 Peter 1.4 Though he alone is the Savior, Jesus, the eternal Son, is in perfect solidarity with all the saved. We're going to see this. As one who is also saved from death. Jesus was saved from death. Hebrews 5.7 but only after experiencing death for everyone and defeating the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil. As the apostle of our confession, Jesus suffered for us in fulfillment of divine mission one. As our great high priest, he suffers with us in all of our sufferings. He suffers with us in an extension of that mission into divine mission two, that of the Holy Spirit into all the earth. 
It is not so that the origin of the interpretation without or far from God has to be Nestorian, N-E-S-T-O-R-I-A-N, Nestorian. Some argue this, including A.T. Robertson. Nestorianism is the distorted Christology that averred that Christ became two persons at his incarnation. Jesus isn't two persons. He's one person with two natures, divine and human. Jesus isn't half man, half God. He is fully God and fully man in one person. Nestorianism says that he was two persons. By his incarnation, he became two persons, a divine person and a human person. Consequently, Nestorians maintain that only Jesus' human person experienced death. There's all kinds of Nestorianism today. Well, he only experienced death in his humanity. His humanity died. But in fact, Jesus experienced death as the God-man. Nestorianism was correctly declared heretical in 431 A.D., in the time of the patristics. In 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, it was established that the incarnation of Jesus Christ means that he is one person with two distinct natures, not two persons in one. Neither is it right to say that Jesus is half man and half God. If you follow that out, you get idolatry. Jesus is fully God and fully man and was such when he experienced death for everyone. A.T. Robertson, the modern exegete, and the ancient theologian Theophylact both say that Chorus Theu of Hebrews 2.9 has to be Nestorian in its origin, so it has to be rejected. Now stay with me just for a few more minutes because I'm going to hit a peak here and an insight that is, I think, astonishing. It's not true that Chorus Theu has to be Nestorian and so rejected as a translation variation. This can be demonstrated because first, manuscripts with that translation appeared before the Nestorian controversy. And second, because some of the patristic theologians viewed it not as a distinction of two persons in God's Son, but they viewed the word choristeo as what we might see as the limit of salvation. That is, salvation was limited to all of creation and not to God. If such a translation has to be ruled out, the basis for its cancellation can't be by playing the Nestorian card. In fact, I'm convinced that choristeo is the right sense, if not the right translation of this key phrase in Hebrews 2.9. Here's the objection and my reply, and we'll stop. Someone may say, what about Jesus saying in John 8.29 that the Father has not left him alone? 
while referring to his crucifixion in John 8, 28. When I'm lifted up, you'll know that I am he. And the Father hasn't left me alone, meaning the Father hasn't left me alone in the crucifixion. That's how I might interpret it. So how can it be said, this is the objector speaking now, how can it be said that Jesus experienced God-forsakenness when God is never said to leave him? My reply to that thoughtful objection, and it is a thoughtful objection, is that God the Father was with the Son. Listen carefully. God the Father was with the Son, and even in the Son, God was in Christ, and shared the experience of God-forsakenness. When the Son was made sin, the Father in that sense was forsaken by the Son. When the Son was made sin, in that sense, God, who is essentially good, abandoned the Son. But both experienced God-forsakenness. And so, my reply to that thoughtful objection is that God the Father was with the Son and shared the experience of God-forsakenness. This is an incomprehensible, impossible possibility. But God is all about impossible possibilities. Nothing shall be impossible to God. So this impossible possibility, this impossible possibility, lies at the base of that which Lonergan called, quote, the just and mysterious law of the cross. What Moltmann and other theologians call the theology of the cross. What Paul called the word of the cross. Only by looking at the cross in this way can we logically view it as the means by which God transforms evil into the supreme good by extending his own essential good into all things through the cross so that God may be all in all. And Father, we close today by saying, may we never glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.